Get ready for the greatest roast of all time. The Roast of Tom Brady. A Netflix live event happening May 5th. Hosted by Kevin Hart, the seven-time world champion gets his cleats held to the fire by famous friends and frenemies on an unforgettable night where everything is fair game. Tune in on May 5th at 5 p.m. Pacific time for The Roast of Tom Brady, live only on Netflix. You ready? Showtime. On May 3rd, summer starts with The Fall Guy. What are you doing later? Let's drink a spicy margarita. Make some bad decisions. Yes! Audiences are falling in love with the most entertaining film of the year. Fall guy. Fall guy. Fall guy. That's what the poster said. See Ryan Gosling and Emily Blunt in the movie critics say exists to make you happy. Trying to make it out? Nope. Because I don't either. It's not what I'm into right now. What are you into? Talking. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the Fall Guy. Only in theaters May 3rd. Read it PG-13. Gators Breakdown. The Gators Fan Podcast, because there's never a dull moment in Gator Nation. The Gators Breakdown Podcast is ready to go. I'm your host, David Waters, and you can find me on Twitter at GatorDave underscore SCC. Joined by co-host Will Miles. You can find him at his site, readandreaction.com, and on Twitter at WillMilesSCC. Will, um... Got some good news, of course, getting in uh, for, for the Gators. But uh, checking in, checking in with you, I've uh, been a uh, couple weeks, uh, about a week or so since you've been on the podcast. Uh, went through with an episode uh, last week with some Gators getting some good news, and we talked about Charles Montgomery uh, last week. But then the, the commitment of Jalen Kitna as well, a quarterback, and now Lorenzo Lingard gets cleared. Uh, it's been, you know, the news slowed down a little bit with COVID, but for the last week or so. Uh, Good news for the Gators. Yeah, people aren't gonna let you have me on anymore because when I when I when I miss an episode or two, all of a sudden good stuff starts happening. Whereas about the three or four weeks prior, it had all been bad news. So um, yeah, it's been it's been good news for Dan Mullen, good news for the Gators, and obviously with the players coming back pretty soon to campus, I think everybody is starting to anticipate we're gonna have a season. We don't know exactly what that's gonna look like, but we are gonna have a season, and so every you know I think everybody should be excited about the prospects of that and. Hopefully, hopefully we'll be able to gather with 90,000 of our closest friends. But if nothing else, maybe 25,000 of us will get to go in there. And and uh, certainly I don't think that'll stop us from tailgating. So, <laughs> so it's starting to ramp up a little bit, starting to get the news. And and certainly with the news for Lingard this week um, with the uh, with the waiver coming through for him, um, that's one more piece for Dan Mullen in 2020. Yeah, absolutely. We'll get into uh, all that. But, uh, Will, warmers, uh, weather's warming up and all that good stuff. Uh enjoying enjoying the weather up there now oh my god am i ever like we, we didn't have any snow this winter so it really wasn't that bad usually okay. it's when, usually when it snows and you're sliding all over the place and you know the ice is out for three or four weeks like that's when it's bad we, we didn't have any of that this year but but yeah we went for a walk today it was 70 degrees and sunny the whole time during the walk so you know you guys are all starting to molt down there <laughs> and, and the thunderstorms are coming this afternoon i'm sure if they haven't come already yeah. but uh and we don't have any of that right now. It's just gorgeous up here, and, and we're enjoying the weather as best we can when you know when we're allowed outside. Yeah, up in uh, around the Jacksonville area, I think it rained every day pretty much this past week in the afternoon. Uh, so that summertime routine's coming in. Uh, went up to Georgia, went up to my parents, and enjoyed some pool time. But yeah, about ninety ninety five degrees. So 
big still still big difference yeah well we go we go yellow next week so theoretically people are still supposed to be in their houses up here but um not a lot of us got the memo today when we were out there going for a walk so uh i think we're all ready for it to be ready for it to be over ready for it to be summer and and ready for some football all right we're ready for some football and some football talk too as i said we'll get into lorenzo lingard being declared eligible by the NCAA, and we'll finish up the episode with our uh, part two of our opponent whip around coverage, um, getting you set for Georgia, Vanderbilt, Missouri, and Florida State to round up our whip around coverage as we head into the summer months. Before we get there, remember you can find Gators Breakdown on news4jacks.com slash Gators Breakdown. Find all the Gators Breakdown episodes there, as well as news for jacks coverage of the Gators. Please share, rate, and review the show. Subscribe on YouTube or your favorite podcast platform. And follow Gators Breakdown on social media, on Twitter and Facebook, at Gators Breakdown. So, absolutely. Great news here for the Gators. Lorenzo Lingard declared eligible by the NCAA and the former Army All-American, five-star prospect, according to the 24-7 Sports Composite. He was rated as the number 25 overall player in the country in the 2018 recruiting class and the number two running back in the nation in that class as well. Uh, also checked in as the number six overall player in the state of Florida uh, for the 2018 class. While at Miami, will finish his first season with 17 carries for 136 yards and two touchdowns. Best performances coming against Savannah State, where he amassed four carries for 82 yards and two touchdowns. Also added 10 carries for 50 yards versus FIU. Missed the final seven games of his freshman season in 2018 with a knee injury. Cleared to play in 2019. Miami staff brought him along slowly, and he didn't play until about mid-season, week week six against Virginia Tech. After that game, uh, he met with uh, Manny Diaz, uh, Miami's head coach, and uh, made a play for him to to redshirt. And uh, Gators territory, Zach Albaverde had a really good uh, story on that this past week, and a lot of that comes from this. But uh, quote, you know, he in. Um, Basically, you know, Lingard, you know, just wasn't right, and, and there's something uh, going on with that, and that was kind of in, in, in relation to his dad uh, as well. Only appeared in two games in the 2019 season, didn't receive uh, any carries all season. Around the same time, you know, he recently told uh, the Gators territory, Zach Albaverde, that he learned his father was sick and dealing with kidney dialysis and uh, heart troubles as well. So, Will, with that, you know, all that combined with – all that combined, you know, led Lingard to enter the transfer portal back in December to be closer to home. He chose Florida in January without even visiting the Gators. He applied for a waiver to be able to play this season without sitting out. Uh, and it looked good for him and other transfers out there uh, that they thought we thought that one-time transfer rule uh, would come into play by the NCAA. They tabled that, and then it turns out he wouldn't need it as on uh, Saturday. He announced via Twitter that he had been cleared to play for the 2020 season. So, well, you know, we talk a lot here uh, about recruiting and, and, and stars matter and, you know, go out there and, and get the better players, the, the five stars and the four stars. One so far uh, in two seasons for uh, Lingard um, has dealt with some things, but uh, hasn't necessarily you know been able to to show his five star status that he uh, acquired in high school. 
Yeah, well, I mean, he did average eight yards per rush when he was given an opportunity his freshman year at Miami, and that's certainly pretty impressive when when you look at that. Even if, even if it wasn't necessarily against the uh, the most outstanding competition when he was doing that, um, the more concerning thing obviously would be the the MCL injury that he that he suffered that freshman year, and then coming back. If Miami didn't think that he was right last year, you know, is his knee fully healed? And and if it is. Um, you know, he, he's a really good player, really explosive player. One of the reasons he's got that five-star ranking. And you figure that the the running backs and, and the receivers and the quarterbacks are the guys who sort of leap off at you. When you think about five-star recruits, I think oftentimes it's maybe a little bit more difficult to rate, say, a defensive tackle between a four-star and a five-star. But, you know, a running back, usually you know, right? It's the, it's the guy who has the home run ability. It's the guy who really puts his, puts his head in the hole and, and can break tackles and those sorts of things. So, I would expect that we're going to see a uh, uh, a motivated Lingard. I think we're going to see somebody who's probably more comfortable where he's at, particularly with the health issues that you mentioned with his father. And I think you're going to see someone who's had a year off from the game and so probably is going to be healthy and, and able to contribute. Now, you know, Damian Pierce is a good player, and so he's still going to have to beat him out or or – slide into a backup role, but the depth at the position for Florida in 2020 just got a lot better being able to have Lorenzo Lingard in there. Um, you know, and, and, you know, guys like Malik Davis and Naquan Wright and all that sort of stuff are going to get an opportunity too. But, but Davis has, has not necessarily stepped into the roles that he's been given the last couple of years under Dan Mullen. And so Lingard's going to get a shot. Yeah. And there's plenty of videos out there that he's put out himself on, on social media of, of lifting, you know, head heavy weights there uh, on that knee. Uh, running uh, at full speed as well you know all that all that's good you know we, we can break down twitter videos all we want to it doesn't really matter a whole lot but it does show some ability there uh, of being able to hit for his need to be able to hold up with some heavy weight on it and, and him to, to cut and run straight line speed and still use that speed that he was known for back as a high school recruit and will yeah, you put it best, man. It gives them options to the Florida run game. It gives those Gator run game some depth. It gives them plenty of options to figure things out to get better uh, from last season. But you know, just in these last couple weeks, this run game has gotten better, and now it's just going to see how much it's gotten better. That's what we got. That's what we have to see. That's what's remaining to be seen when they go out there and play games. But with the the addition of Stuart Reese at on, on offensive line, and now Lorenzo Lingard, former five star recruit. You add these two pieces to the run game, a run game that struggled a lot, and, and there's there's some options now, and, and there's some ability to, to 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 get better. And look, this was a run game that showed improvement late. Uh, once the offensive line started Richard Garage and Ethan White a bit more later in the season, but look, part of that also was Lamichael Piran and his huge part in that. And he's no longer here, and especially the Piran we saw in the Orange Bowl win versus Virginia, where he was the difference maker in in the game. He was the player of that game. He was the one that jumped off the page uh, in that game for the Gators on the ground, but we'll also through the passing game. Uh, so we need more proof that Damian Pierce can handle taking uh, taking on a bigger role. Uh, Pierce is more of the, the powerful downhill runner. Lingard, a bit of a different style with some more speed and elusiveness there. So you can you can open up a game with two different styles of running backs here if those will be your top two uh, running backs. And Malik Davis, we haven't seen the same explosiveness that we saw in, in 2017. And then some fumbling issues uh, uh, at times last year as well. But for Lingard, you know, coming out of high school, reportedly – Clocked the in uh, around his time at Miami, his freshman season, we clocked a blazing 4.27 40-yard dash, uh, 10.71 100-meter dash, but uh, still a, a lot of questions uh, uh, there for this Gator running game and what he can bring to the to the table as well in regards to everybody else. But with the addition of him and Reese, uh, th this 
this running game is going to be better. It's just to what degree I think that's that's going to be what we uh, what what we one of the bigger headlines going into this Gator season. Uh, honestly, uh, for any position on the field, we thought this run game would be better, but with these two additions, I think just I just think that the, the degree is more in question right now. Yeah, you know, I'll believe those four point two seven forty times yeah. when I actually see them. That, that that doesn't sound like it's been laser, uh, <laughs> laser, laser acquired or anything yeah. like that. But I mean, there's no doubt that he that he's a fast that he's a fast player and that he has breakaway ability. But one of the things that he did do, um, if you go back and look at some of the articles about his time at Miami, is he returned kicks and he returned punts. So, um, you know, with Freddie Swain leaving, that there's an option there immediately where he can make a contribution on special teams. Where, you know, Florida has a gap. And if you remember back to the Urban Meyer team. Back after you know Chris Rainey and Jeff Demps were were brought in, one of the things you'd see is those guys playing heavy heavy minutes concerning punt blocks, right? And we haven't had one of those in a long time down in Gainesville, really. It feels like, and so just getting more athletic on special teams is a big deal as well. So you know, you, you think about the running game, you think about what what Linger can potentially bring to that position, and obviously, if it turns into he wins the starting job, he's probably not going to do a whole lot on special teams. At the same time. If he doesn't win the starting job, if Pierce ends up winning it for whatever reason, then you still have him as as a major contributor at other areas where, you know, you maybe don't necessarily want to have Kadarius Tony back there returning kicks because of the injury risk and the limitations that they have at wide receiver because of the four guys who've left over this past year. Um, so having him in that role in special teams, I think, will probably be a big deal as well. And then you mentioned catching the ball, and that's something that nobody outside of Pirine has really has really proven that they have an ability to do, but is a big part of Dan Mullen's offense. And then the other thing that I think people need to watch for early in the year is pass protection. Um, you know, back in 2017, I think, or 2018, I think there was a big, um, you know, a lot of people questioned why why Jordan Scarlett wasn't in the game as often. I guess it was 2016. People were questioning why Scarlett wasn't playing quite as much. And really it boiled down to not understanding the scheme well enough to be able to pass protect the quarterback. And once he got that down, then he was the most effective runner and he was the guy who was in there. So there's more than just running the ball. When you bring a guy into to Dan Mullen's offense, I mean, you can be a first down back and a second down back maybe in Mullen's offense without having those things down. But that's going to be the thing that I think is going to be uh, one of the determining factors is if they're more comfortable with Damian Pierce in terms of his ability to pick up blitzes, pick up pass protection and catch the ball out of the backfield, then Pierce may get, to, may get more playing time even if he's not quite as effective a runner, if Linger can come in and show that he shows real value in terms of catching the ball, special teams, picking up blitzes, um, then he's going to get some opportunities to carry the ball just because um, you want to be able to have a guy in there for three downs. And if you can show the abilities in those other areas, then it it allows you to have the the running back in there for all those downs and the defense doesn't know what you're going to do. Yeah, and one more, Will, and we discussed this when he was brought in, uh, but also a couple of weeks ago with, with Stuart Reese and, and Mullen's track record with uh, transfers, and those guys have coming in and, and, and been impact players. So hopefully uh, one more on the way for 2020 uh, in Lorenzo Lingard. We'll see what happens with the other ones uh, that, that are still waiting wait for Justin Shorter. I know there's a rumor out there that he's going to be cleared to play as well. Um, I don't know. Whether to believe that or not, but you know we'll see uh, if that goes. I think his his path to getting eligible is a little tougher than, than Lingard's here, dealing with his uh, his dad being sick and, and moving closer to home from Miami uh, to moving closer to Gainesville to be closer to his dad in the Orlando uh, area. So, will does it does it change your expectation any uh, for for the season here? Uh, of course, you know it, it's not the quarterback position. It's not the most important. 
role on the field. It's not the the most important position on the field, uh, much like quarterbacks. But you know, for one thing that we know this Gator team was missing last year, uh, it was being able to run the ball. And so we think it will be better uh, with this team. And, and if it is better, um, I, I, what it can do, I, I think, is it 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 lessens the need for Kyle Trask to replicate what he did so last year. Um, now, it's not to say he can't, but I think it will lead to more explosive plays. You get out there and, and get the run game going and, and get some play action passes, and you know that leaves some downfield passing. And, and that, you know where, where we said Kyle Trask could probably improve a bit. Uh, well, if, if teams have to worry about a run game and there's a lot more one-on-one coverage out there and then safeties are crept up a little bit because there's now a run game going, that helps Kyle Trask. So maybe you know overall this helps where – Kyle Trask maybe doesn't have the stats that he had last year, but there's much bigger plays because the run game is helping Kyle Trask and, and him not having to be the guy almost, you know, play in and play out. Yeah. I mean, everything works in concert, right? So having a running back back there who's explosive can make a difference, but I really think it, it doesn't change my expectations a whole lot because my expectations are already pretty high. Yeah. That's and, 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 and if you're looking at, I mean, 2020 is the year that Florida is going to have to make their move because of all the quarterback transition that's happening in the sec, because they have a guy coming back who's proven himself to be one of, if not the best quarterback in the sec coming back. And, and so you expect them to be able to lean on Trask. But a couple of things that I've written about in the past couple of months is that, you know, against better defenses, they were able to squeeze Trask and sort of make him do things he didn't want to do because Florida didn't have the running game. But again, if you look back at 2018, P. Ryan averaged 6.2 yards per rush. And then you look at 2019, he averaged 5.1 yards per rush, pretty much the same number of carries. And they threw to him a lot more. So they threw to him 40 times last year, and they only threw to him 13 times the year before. Well, why is that? Well, I mean, the reason is because the offensive line was struggling. So, you know, one of the good things about all the transfers that Dan Mullen has brought in is not only that he's hit on them, but that they've been guys who have been important and in positions of need. And so, you know, last year they bring in Jonathan Grenard and he's replacing Ja'Kai Polite. And it turns into a huge addition for the team because they've got somebody there. This year they're bringing in Stuart Reese. And let's be honest, I think we all anticipated that that Hevesy and Mullen were probably going to see more I know I did. We're going to see more progress on the offensive line as the season went along. And they really didn't. In fact, what wound up happening was they Blake got pushed out of the program and then Ethan White sort of took over. And it wasn't until the bowl game against Virginia that you really started to see progress on that offensive line. Now, it was good to see progress over the over the course of the bowl practices, and I expect the offensive line to be a little bit better. But certainly, Reese knowing the program, getting in there and and sort of pushing those guys, I think is going to be a significant deal. But that that to me is why my expectations don't change too much with Lingard being in the fold. It's not that he won't contribute. It's not that he won't make big plays. Now, if it turns out that he's somebody who you give him the ball and he's electric and he can take the ball to the house anytime you give him the ball, well, okay, yeah, that changes the ceiling of Florida's offense. But I think if Florida has an offense that has an offensive line that can get five yards when five yards are there, when the defense is giving you five yards, if they can get it, then all of a sudden that opens up all sorts of stuff for Trask. Now, obviously, if, if Lingard can take that five-yard run and turn it into 50, okay, well, now that that really raises the ceiling of what the offense can be. But that's maybe where my expectations lie a little bit, is if he can be a truly explosive guy who's just really, really dangerous when you give him the ball, it changes what the what the ceiling of the offense can be. But I, I think from the standpoint of the functionality of the offense, the offensive line is probably where my expectations lied a little bit more, and, and that's where Reese becomes really important. 
Yeah, I think it's just – I think it's going to be successful either way. Uh, just how does it look? <laughs> will it be more Kyle Trask or will it not be as much Kyle Trask? Because I think he can rely on Damian Pierce, um, Lorenzo Lingard, some of the other backs as well, and this offensive line getting better, uh, like you mentioned. Well, before we wrap up quickly, the Gators uh, got a – Another their second quarterback commit uh, of the class. I briefly hit on it on a YouTube video uh, this week, but we'll bring it into podcast form a bit uh, uh, as well. Three star quarterback out of the Dallas area, Jalen Kitna is the son of uh, John Kitna, quarterback out there. Carlos Delrio is already in the fold, Will, but uh, went and got a, a second quarterback mostly to make up, you know, missing Jalen Jones um, when he was uh, booted from the program basically uh, about a year ago, right after spring practice. And so, you know, six foot four, 200 pounds, uh, put on about, you know, put on a lot of that weight uh, since, uh, since the turn of the year, uh, about 25 pounds or so. Um, you know, not necessarily, you know, of course, thought of as one of the, the better quarterback prospects out there. As I said, only rated a three star. I do know for a fact that the coaches like him a lot. They really love his potential here. But, well, I mean, just a, a, a Nothing more than, honestly, you know, just a second quarterback in the class to bring some numbers in after this year where, I mean, um, you know, Emory Jones and Anthony Richardson were going to be the only scholarship quarterbacks on um, as far as guys that who are already uh, on the team for the 2020 team. Uh, they were going to be the only quarterbacks on the roster next year until Del Rio and now Kitna uh, are part of the class as uh, as commits for the 2021 class right now. Yeah, well, I mean, I think you like that he's a coach's son, right? You figure that he's going to have an in-depth in-depth understanding of what Dan Mullen's trying to do, and you figure that that his dad has been involved in terms of where he's going to select to go and, and why he would select to go there. Um, it, the fact that he's a three-star and, and really is more of a developmental quarterback, I think, does speak to the kind of guy you'd want to bring in, right? I mean, Carlos Del Rio basically said he doesn't care. Go ahead and bring him in. But part of that is because they're not bringing in a guy who's rated exactly the same as Carlos Del Rio, which is something that we saw can backfire a couple, you know, a decade ago when, when Will Muschamp brought in, brought in Jeff Driscoll and Jacoby Brissett at the same time. And then you end up with one getting hurt right after the other one transfers. And, and it really sets you up to be sort of numbers deficient in the background. I, I have no doubt that they've probably told Kit and he'll have a chance to win the job. But that you know he's he's starting at a little bit of a disadvantage just because of the the room that he's coming into to begin with, um, but yeah, I mean I think anytime you got an opportunity to add a guy with a strong arm, and and this is something that I, I think we talked about a little bit um, maybe during the season when Trask came in is that it's going to be interesting to see how programs recruit at the quarterback position because if you bring in two or three or four highly ranked guys year after year after year after year, you're always going to have to be worried that they're going to transfer if they don't get an opportunity, especially with the one-time transfer rule that's going to be coming in and, and all those sorts of things. And one of the things that's very special about Trask is that, you know, in high school, he stuck it out at the same high school and in college, he stuck it out at the same college. And now he's reaping the benefits of that. And so you do wonder whether the the sort of Kirby smart model of recruiting quarterbacks where, you know, you've got Jake Eason, I'll bring in Jake Fromm. Oh, you got Jake Fromm, I'll bring in Justin Fields. Well, now they're sitting here having to bring in all of these transfer guys at quarterback because none of the guys that they recruited have stuck around long enough. Now, obviously, with Fields, there's some other stuff going on, and, and he's been very successful at Ohio State, so I don't think you'd necessarily argue with his decision-making. But it does leave Georgia in a bit of a precarious situation where you've got Jamie Newman, and, and you don't necessarily know how he's going to be, and you get Carson Beck and he's a true freshman and all of a sudden the quarterback room is pretty bare um you know considering the the type of recruiting that they've done so i think maybe this is some of that is is an acknowledgement that you are going to have to recruit the quarterback position a little bit differently 
in light of the way that quarterbacks are moving around. And then the other part is, is like you said, they need to replace the depth in the room because of Jalen Jones being, being, uh, transferring and, uh, and, and this is one way to do that. But I, I suspect that they've been in close contact with Del Rio, that he's okay with it, that mm-hmm. he's probably had some conversations with Kitna and, and that they have an understanding that they're going to push each other much the way Felipe Franks and Cal Trask did, right? I mean, I, I don't think um, – I think Trask thought he was going to get a shot, but I think when he didn't win the job, it wasn't immediately, oh, I'm going to transfer someplace else. And so I suspect the same thing will be true of Kitna as well. And, well, you kind of do bring up a good point. Another part of that is – it doesn't look like Dan Mullen really has much interest in ch- in chasing quarterbacks through the transfer portal, and there are other positions maybe so. But as you said, with Kitna, he can groom him. He can he can sit back there. He can learn for a bit, and if something does happen, well, at least you've had a guy who's been around the program and didn't have to go chase a transfer, didn't have to go chase a grad transfer uh, to come in here and, and be your quarterback. You know, you and I were uh, – very high on the on the Joe Burrow uh, sweepstakes when he was choosing between uh, when he chose to leave Ohio State. Uh, there's been some other other quarterbacks out there uh, as well, but uh, doesn't seem there's much interest from from Dan Mullen's side of things to to go get uh, a grad transfer quarterback, whether recruit him, whether build him, whether develop him uh, in w- w- with his way. And you know, who, uh, can't fault for, can't fault that given his track record out there and the way he's developed quarterbacks and the way he's have changed Felipe Franks his first season and what Kyle Trask has been able to do uh, as well in Dan Mullen's second season. Yeah, it just doesn't seem there's going to be a whole lot of interest out there uh, from Dan Mullen's side unless he just gets into a, a tricky situation to go out there and get a transfer quarterback and rather recruit and build his quarterback. Well, now you're just trying to bait me by telling me that he wasn't interested in going after Burrow. <laughs> I'm, I'm, oh, not no, gonna... I'm not saying he wasn't, but I don't <laughs> – I don't think I don't, I'm not sure it was as heavy as you know what LSU was doing. I, if there's probably some discussions, I just don't think he was going to get on his hands and knees and, and go plead for a, a transfer quarterback. Well, I mean, uh, so look, I, I think we've all seen that the, when it comes to the different areas of strength that a coach has, that Mullen has areas that don't typically fall into recruiting. It says what that is not the one A strength of his of his program. Whereas when you look at Georgia, I think you say that is the one A strength of their program. And at the same time, I think there are a lot there are a lot of guys who've gone to Georgia and have decided this isn't exactly what I was told it was going to be. When and 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 have decided to go elsewhere afterwards. So, um, you know, Mullen has been pretty consistent in terms of his the way he's handled quarterbacks over his career. He did not bring in a ton of trans. Transfers in my recollection when he was at when he was at Mississippi State, he very rarely started somebody as a freshman. He very you know he's not bringing in guys to to compete after he's had guys in his system working for two or three years, and you know that changes if you're not comfortable with the guys in your room. But the reality is, is right now he's probably very comfortable with Kyle mm-hmm. Trask and Emory Jones. And by the end of next year, he should be very comfortable with Emory Jones and Anthony Richardson. And by the end of the next year after that, he should be comfortable with all three of those guys, with with the Rio and Kitna involved in that as well. So, you know, if you're bringing in a guy every year, then you don't need to go hit the transfer portal if they're not transferring out. And th- and that's maybe the and 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 therein lies the ability to communicate, the ability to interface with your recruits, the ability to sort of sell your quarterbacks on what they're actually going to do. And the reality is, if if a five star quarterback looks at Florida and says, "I want to come in and start right away," well, you know, you're going to have to win the job, right? You're not just going to be given it because you're a five star recruit. That's been Mullen's history, and and certainly I'd love for him to bring in a five star recruit, but. Um, I think that the quarterback room for, at Florida is pretty strong right now. I think when you look at the guys who are in there, um, you'd love for them to hit on somebody who's, you know, uh, 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 
Trevor Lawrence or somebody like mm-hmm. that. But, you know, short of that, I think he's done a really good job of bringing in guys who fit his offense, guys that he likes, guys that he can develop. And, you know, the other thing is he's taken guys that he didn't recruit and guys that he didn't promise to develop. And he's made those guys better players as well. So uh, I'm not going to doubt his ability on on offense, really. I'm not going to doubt his ability at quarterback. Um, I, I think at the end of the day, you got to trust that Mullen's going to know what he's doing with these guys and and that if he sees something in Kitna that likely it's something that he's going to be able to use over the course of the four years that Kitten's in school. And, and um, you know, you, you sort of hope you never get to the point where, you know, you hope that one of these guys that he's brought in turns into, you know, the next Tim Tebow, Cam Newton, somebody like that, Danny Werfel, <laughs> a guy who yeah. can, who can play for three or four years and be a, be a star. But at the same time, if you go back and think about Werfel, when he first came in, he was splitting time, you know, that freshman year, Spurrier was yanking him in and out. You, you go back and you look at, at Tebow. He came in and split time with Leak his first year. You go back and you look at Rex Grossman even when he came in. Mm-hmm. And he was splitting time until he finally took over in in, in, uh, in 2001. So, you know, you, you don't always know exactly what you've got until you put a guy out there and sort of have him splitting reps. And and I suspect that that's going to kind of be what happens over the next few years is that Mullen's going to suss out which one of his guys is is his guy to ride with. And and hopefully that guy can give us a three or four game winning streak against Georgia. And well, uh, and the, the thing about it is I, I brought it up too uh, in the video, different styles of quarterbacks too, not necessarily just stuck on one, you know, dual threat or, or pro style or drop back passer. Mullins went out, went going out and recruiting different styles uh, of quarterbacks as well. So, well, before we wrap up this episode and for the whip around uh, coverage part of what you got going on at Reading Reaction this week. Yeah, so we're going to be doing a couple of things. Um, I, I still got Nick. He's working on uh, on the Charlie Pell stuff pretty hard. We're going to be releasing those sort of rapid fire. We released a couple of them before we realized how in-depth it was going to get. So uh, so we're going to be releasing some of those. And then uh, I'm planning on looking into some some – differences between the coaches is in the sec sort of understand where those guys stand. I, I know most people rank people like Orgeron now is getting an awful lot of love because he won a national championship and, and rightfully so, right? When you win a championship, you're going to get a lot of love, but I've been looking back at the coaches to see what their, what their different records are. And it's interesting. I, I think I found some things that people may not, may not necessarily, uh, may not necessarily jump out to people when they think of different coaches and, and their abilities and, and there'll be some Georgia slander. So it'll be fun. <laughs> and then Athlon put out their uh, coaches' ranking that got uh, blown up, and Dan Mullen was second in the SEC there. So uh, uh, pretty interesting uh, there. But uh, I'm going to work on an episode. I think we're, we're trying to get Braden Gall on for a Florida-Georgia debate episode coming up in the next few weeks some, at some point, Will. So the uh, me and you and a couple other dog fans, uh, podcasters. So it uh, should be pretty fun for the uh, 2020 season. And, and Braden Gall from Athlon said uh, he, he, he'd jump in and, and help along the way. So. <laughs> well, you know, the problem is we don't have any recent wins no, to, like, to hang our hat on. Yeah, so yeah. this is so they, 2020 only, I guess. <laughs> yeah. So we'll, we'll have to tell them that they can't say, look at the scoreboard while we're, while we're yeah. back and forth. But, um, you know, I'm sure there'll be a couple of references to, to backup quarterbacks in, in Alabama. So we'll, we'll, we'll make it fair. <laughs> All right. All right. Before we, uh, right, you, you can find Will at readandreaction.com and on Twitter at Will Miles SCC. And to finish up this episode, we're going to conclude our opponent whip around coverage. The first part was released a couple of weeks ago. We'll finish it up uh, with the last four Power Five opponents on the Gators schedule with a look at Georgia, Vanderbilt, Missouri, and FSU from reporters and analysts that covers those teams. 
This is Palmer Tom from Dogs 24-7. And Palmer, let's get right into it. Um, a lot of change on the on the Georgia coaching staff the last couple of seasons, but this time on the offensive side of the ball, Kirby Smart, you know, philosophically changing the offense. Todd Munkins now, is now the new offensive coordinator. Sam Pittman leaves for Arkansas. Former Ole Miss head coach Matt Luke's now offensive line coach. Wake Forest transfer. Jamie Newman's taking over for Jake Fromm. DeAndre Swift is gone, along with a few offensive linemen. Do you feel the move was necessary after only, you know, of only one season of average offense? And, you know, how, how's it all going to work together with so much change? Yeah, you know, looking at last season in college football, I think everyone is looking for their Joe Brady. And, and what LSU did with Joe Brady bringing him in from the New Orleans Saints, Georgia brings in Todd Monken. To, you know, who's, who has spent time at both the college and professional levels, was an offensive coordinator at Oklahoma State before being a head coach at Southern Miss and then transitioning to the pros uh, and worked with the Tampa Bay Buccaneers and the Cleveland Browns most recently. I think, you know, George, Kirby Smart and Georgia think that they can get what LSU got in Joe Brady, uh, you know, a, a sort of hybrid, you know, pro-style spread offense and, and you know, bringing in Jamie Newman it's a different quarterback than what Georgia has had the past couple seasons and Jake Fromm. And so I think there's a lot for Georgia fans to be excited about. Um, and, and, you know, I think that it was definitely worth the change, um, you know, with, with everything that Kirby smart brings to the table defensively, there needed to be a little bit of a philosophy change offensively and Todd bringing in Todd Monken certainly does that. Is there worry with, with with so much change going on that uh, in that you know of course now missing spring football uh, that all this change is gonna at least maybe lend itself to a slower start for the Bulldogs? Yeah, I mean I don't think there would have been any concern if they had had spring practice. Um, and and you know with you mentioned with so much uncertainty as to when they're gonna get in, you know, and, and be able to get some practice, you know, with these coaches. Um, I think that now with all that uncertainty, there is uncertainty for Georgia, um, you know, as far as to how they may start. And, you know, looking at their schedule, they open with ACC Coastal Division champion Virginia in Atlanta. You know, Jordan, Florida fans are well familiar with, very familiar with the Cavs. But, you know, I, I think Georgia should be able to get through those that game and then East Tennessee State the next week. Um and, but, you know, it's certainly a big challenge week three for the Bulldogs in Tuscaloosa. Um, so, you know, I think assuming everything happens the way uh, that the college football schedule is laid out currently, I think, you know, a lot can be learned about Georgia week three when they travel to Alabama. Um, and, and, you know, I think we're going to see – I think fans were definitely excited to see what some of that change may, may look like in the spring. Obviously, you don't – you know, put all your cards on the table, you know, in, in March and April. Um, and, and I don't think you do it in September either. Um, but, you know, I, I think with that big challenge so early in the season for Georgia, uh, there's going to be a lot that can be learned about this team uh, in early September. And for all the questions on offense, there's very little on defense. And look, it'd be hard to be better than last season. But hey, look, I'm sure that's the mark for that for for that side of the ball. Oh, I mean, absolutely. You know, I mentioned with Kirby Smart and his defensive-minded, um, you know, philosophies. This team is very excited, and and people around this program are very excited about this defense that's returning. Um, you lose All-American safety J.R. Reed, but you replace him with a five-star in Lewis Seen. 
Um, and, and, you know, Reed didn't play in Georgia's Sugar Bowl win over Baylor. Seen filled in there and, you know, got reps throughout the season, got reps against LSU in the SEC championship game um, because Georgia was putting more defensive backs on the field to play against that Tiger offense. Um, so, you know, you, you've got to change there in, on the back end, but, you know, Georgia fans are definitely excited that they're bringing back potential first-round pick next season, Richard LeCount. Um, you know, he, he's been a three-year starter at the position, um, you know, played as a freshman too. And so he, he's going to be, you know, back there at that position with a ton of experience. You know, at linebacker, they lose Tay Crowder, um, who was selected, the only Bulldog defensive player selected in this past year's NFL draft. Um, and, you know, with a defense that was that good last season to only have one player selected and it'd be the very last player in the NFL draft. I think, you know, it just shows how much Georgia has coming back and how much, you know, fans can be excited about. I mean, there's a lot of projections that have, you know, one or two uh, Georgia corners going uh, in the first round of the NFL draft next season. Uh, You know, you've got a ton of talent at outside linebacker. Um, you know, so much so that a five-star like Brendan Cox was leaving the program last season. Um, and, and so, you know, I think with everything that's coming back and how much Georgia players, how, you know, how many Georgia players got to play, how much experience that those young guys gained. I mean, Tyreek Stevenson, Nolan Smith, Trayvon Walker, the, the list of freshmen goes on and on and on. And then, you know, some sophomores that were getting reps. Um you know, I, I think with how much experience those guys gained and how many of those guys got experience, Georgia's going to be deep and, you know, have tons and tons of talent to be dealt with on that defensive side of the ball. And you alluded to the, alluded to it earlier. You'd have to think with the thoughts, you know, those thoughts that you just shared on defense and what we talked about on the offense, that kind of has to be the thought, you know, if it is a little bit slower start on offense, that this defense, you know, and the, school, the schedule's a little bit different too. Uh, Auburn's earlier in, this, in, in the season now uh, mm-hmm. as well, that this defense can carry the offense to, for a bit until the offense finds its legs. Yeah, and, and I mean, I think there's enough talent on the offensive side of the ball. I, I know tons of people are – you know, talking about the offensive line, you lose left tackle Andrew Thomas, who was selected fourth overall to the New York Giants. You lose right tackle Isaiah Wilson, who went in the first round to the Tennessee Titans. You lose a left guard in Solomon Kinley, who went fourth round to the Miami Dolphins. Um, you know, and, and you lose right – Georgia rotated two guys at right guard, and you lose one of them, Cade Mays, to transfer to Tennessee. I know there's a lot of concern about that offensive line, I think that they've got, you know, you mentioned Sam Pittman earlier. He recruited tons and tons of talent into this program. And I think, you know, you're going to see just a transition, not not a rebuild, but a reload, um, you know, on that Georgia offensive line. I think there's the talent there. You lose DeAndre Swift, but you replace him with former number one running back Zamir White. Um, you know, and, and then it's not like you're coming in with an inexperienced quarterback Jamie Newman has obviously never played in the SEC but he does have that starting experience at a power five school in Wake Forest um and and he's going to be working with wide receivers that got plenty of experience last season um you know in in some growing pains for those guys so I I think I think there's enough talent that the offense shouldn't struggle too much but as you mentioned there's so much confidence in that defense that if 
Georgia has to win games, you know, by, by stopping opponents rather than, you know, putting up points to, you know, go into a shootout. I think there's a lot of confidence that Georgia can win a game, you know, winning on the defensive side of the ball. And for the first time since, you know, Kirby got the ball rolling in his second season at Georgia, you know, there, there is some question if Georgia will repeat as Eastern champions uh, this coming up year. Do you sense any urgency or or anything like that coming from the Georgia side that, you know, maybe there is some talk you know, that, that Florida can go win the East? Is, uh, or is there is there talk uh, behind the scenes? Or are the players taking that, coaching staff taking that uh, as kind of a motivation tactic for this coming up season? Um, I, I'm not too sure. I think we probably would have gotten a better sense of that. Yeah. Um, in spring practice, but I do, I, I mean, I think Georgia players respect this Florida rivalry. Um, I know, you know, Kirby smart certainly does having played in it. Um, and, and so, you know, the Georgia Florida rivalry to, you know, Georgia players is something that they'll always respect. And I think, you know, it's a game that these guys know it's one that they have to win if they want to win the East. Um, and, and so, you know, I, I think there's a lot of, you know, under, there's a, understanding that that game is going to be important regardless of whether or not, you know, Florida is an SEC East contender, which, you know, the past couple of seasons have shown Florida's right there with Georgia. I mean, that game has been a deciding factor in the East uh, each of the last two seasons. And so, um, you know, I I think it doesn't even need to be a division deciding game for it to be taken seriously in Athens but it will be taken even more seriously with those high stakes. And before I let you go, Palmer, what are your thoughts on Florida coming up in, in 2020? Of course, Kyle Trash returns, uh, some offensive weapons return, and as you mentioned, the game's been close in Jacksonville the last couple of years, but uh, I know you recently kind of threw out a, a preview of Florida recently when Dawes 24-7, so what do you think about these Gators heading into 2020? Yeah, I think, you know, with Kyle Trash coming back, there's a lot to be excited about for Florida fans. Um, you know, I mean, I was talking to somebody recently and saying who would have thought that Florida would do better after their starting quarterback went down last season. And so I think, you know, with a full season of Trask, there's a lot to be excited about for Florida fans. Um, you know, obviously a big focus would be improvement, improvement in the running game. Um, and, and I think, you know, losing LaMichael P. Ryan hurts there. Um, but, you know, they've got offensive line coming back. Um, they can you know, help, you know, improve their uh, passing game. Obviously you got to replace Van Jefferson um, and, and some other guys outside, but you know, th- they had plenty of wide receiver talent last season. And so, um, you know, I think it's, it's a game. We said it a couple minutes ago. It's a game that I think is going to decide the SEC East. Um, I'm, I'll be you know, very similar to what uh, Georgia has early in the season with Alabama. I think there's going to be, you know, a sort of defining, not 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 necessarily season-defining game against Tennessee, but I think you're going to learn a lot about this Florida team early on in that season, um, taking on the Volunteers in Knoxville. Um, that's where the game is this year, right? Yep, yep, yep. Yeah, and I think, you know, Tennessee's a team that's coming in off of uh, six straight wins, you know, seeing a ton of momentum in the recruiting trail right now. Um, you know, I think that's a game that just like Georgia has with Alabama, Florida is going to learn a lot about this team, this Gator team, uh, in year three of Dan Mullen traveling to Knoxville. 
you know, that game in Jacksonville, you know, it, uh, it's always, like you said, it's always big, but, you know, Florida's going to have to get past uh, Tennessee and Florida, uh, and Kentucky, who's given them recent troubles as, as well. And then uh, Georgia gets past uh, Alabama and Auburn. Alabama and Auburn. Auburn. Yeah, they get past those two teams. And, and you know, Florida's got LSU before Georgia uh, as well. So, you know, that uh, – yeah, we'll we'll know a lot about these two teams before they head into Jacksonville and just how big that game can be, uh, hopefully, on Halloween weekend. <laughs> Certainly. All right, Palmer Thomas from Dogs 24-7 joining us here, giving us a preview of the Bulldogs. Palmer, thank you, man. Absolutely. Joining us next is Chad Bishop, Senior Editor of Athletic Communications at Vanderbilt. Chad, Vanderbilt took a step back last season. How much pressure is on Derek Mason to turn it around in 2020? Yeah, a lot of pressure. Um, you know, but I don't I don't think that differs from any other year. And I, I think Derek Mason would tell you the same. I mean, all, all these head football coaches put tremendous pressure on themselves. And I think every FBS or FCS or any college or any coach at any level would say, you know, one year to the next, it's everything can change. And I, I think the perfect example is 2019 for the Commodores, right? I mean, you had, you know, three big time NFL talents on offense and uh, there was a lot of hope and a lot of high expectations and things quite simply just did not go right. I mean, it's, it's a simple explanation, but that's, that's what happened. They put a lot of eggs in the Riley Neal basket at quarterback and things didn't quite work out there. The offensive line maybe didn't play up to the standard that they thought it would. Um, defense was pretty stable for the most part, but just really couldn't hold on for four quarters week in and week out. And things never just, you know, quite clicked. Um, so Vanderbilt's kind of hit a reset button, so to speak, going into 2020. So, you know, with all that being said, I, I, I think Derek Mason doesn't feel any added pressure because 2019 was three and nine or 2018 was six and seven. Um, you know, he feels the same amount of pressure, you know, year in and year out to get the Commodores back to a bowl game and to get his team to a winning season and to put his guys in the best position to succeed. You mentioned hitting a, a reset button in a way. Uh, Mason decided to replace both coordinators. So what can we expect from those moves? Yeah, that, that's a that's a huge move and, and two kind of really different scenarios there. Let's start on defense with Ted Roof. That's that should be a very familiar name um, to college football fans. Uh, you know, was at Georgia Tech for a long time has been a defensive coordinator really all over the southeast and all over college football. Uh, just a veteran pre- presence who, as we all know, knows how to coach defense and knows how to create successful defenses. Uh, and I think that's going to be key for Vanderbilt because they have a lot of talent back on defense. If there is a strong suit of the 2020 Commodores, I think it's going to be the defensive side of the ball. Most most starters are back. Most reserves are back. A lot of talent in the linebacking core, a lot of talent in the secondary. And, and so they got a new voice back there. Jason Tarver, de- Jason Tarver departed for the NFL. Ted Roof comes in. Uh, with proven systems and, and proven uh, linguistics and, and going to try to get those guys playing at maybe a little bit of a higher level. So I think I think it's going to be good to see what he brings to the table and how he can kind of elevate that defense to the next level. On the offensive side of the ball, Jerry Godowski departed after 2019, and in comes Todd Fitch, uh, maybe a name that college football fans maybe don't know maybe as well as a Ted Roof, but Todd Fitch was at Louisiana Tech and you just go back and look at Louisiana Tech's offenses the past few years, um, you see some big-time numbers in the passing game, but also some big-time numbers in the run game. Uh, a lot of skill position players putting up big numbers. And, uh, of course, you know, you're going from Conference USA to the SEC, so it'll be a bit difference there. Uh, but, but I think Coach Fitch on the offense side of the ball – 
you know, has a track record of understanding what he has to work with, getting the ball in playmakers' hands, adjusting to his personnel. Um, and, and so I think there'll be a little bit of a learning curve and a little bit of a process there with a young roster on the offense side of the ball. Uh, but I do think you'll see some different things coming out of that Vanderbilt offense in 2020. Speaking of that offense, looks like a two-man race at quarterback, true freshman Ken Seals and Juco transfer, and I hope I'm saying this right, Jeremy Musa. So, <laughs> uh, but, you know, whoever it is, you kind of mentioned it and alluded to it a bit, you know, it's going to have their hands full, uh, have to replace key playmakers, Kashawn Vaughn, Kalia Lipscomb, and, and Jeremy uh, and Jerry Pickney. Um, you know, those guys were, were some big-time playmakers for Vanderbilt. Maybe didn't get as much as you wanted to out of them last year because of the quarterback problems. Uh, give us a breakdown of those two guys. Yeah, no doubt. And and I'll start, you know, by saying not only is it a, a two-quarterback race, it, it may turn out to be a four-quarterback race. Um, Vanderbilt, okay. yeah, Vanderbilt brings in four new quarterbacks um, on scholarship. Uh, Jack Bowen is still on the roster, who is a walk-on quarterback. Ken Seals and Jeremy Musa, who you mentioned were with the team for spring practice. But Jeremy Musa was uh, rehabbing an injury. So Ken Seals was the only uh, scholarship quarterback taking snaps and and likely would have gotten the majority of the reps in the spring game had there been a spring game. And and Ken Seals is a big-time player, a a three-star recruit out of Texas. You know, really, realistically, probably should have been a four-star uh, label. I mean, the kid threw for a ton of yards, led a high school called Weatherford High School to the playoffs where they hadn't been in a long time. Uh, just your your quarterback's quarterback. I mean, the kid has played quarterback all his life, been to all the big-time camps, really the future at, at quarterback for Vanderbilt. But uh, Jeremy Musa came from a junior college. Danny Clark came from a junior college. He was at Kentucky for a couple years. He was an Ohio State commit as a high school uh, talent. Uh, and then you bring in Mike Wright, a true freshman from Atlanta, who was once upon a time committed to Central Florida. So you have those four guys there behind center. And it's it's going to be as wide open as a quarterback battle as, as maybe Vanderbilt has seen in a long time and a lot of college football programs have seen in a long time. But I think that might turn out to be a positive because uh, like a lot of Vanderbilt's offense and a lot of its position battles, they're going to be so open that's going to create a lot of competition in fall camp and, and maybe help elevate the play of some of these guys. So they'll, they'll certainly look to one of those quarterbacks, whichever one can get out there and lead that offense and put up numbers and get the ball in the hands of the people who are supposed to have it. And I think it'll be very interesting because you got a bunch of different talents. Ken Seals, um, you know, is, is kind of your prototypical pro style quarterback. He can move a little bit, but he's more of a pocket passer. Whereas Jeremy Musa, Mike Wright, maybe a little bit more mobile. And, and Danny Clark's the veteran coming in who has been in the SEC, albeit he didn't play a lot, but he's been in SEC clubhouses and, and been on the road and been with an SEC program. So uh, there, there's going to be some interesting moves at that quarterback position come fall. If we go to the defensive side of the ball, and you mentioned uh, a lot of talent returns, but the top 10 tacklers returned from last season. And, you know, Roof coming in, Mason being a defensive-minded head coach, I mean – all that combined and all the experience, you, that has to lead to some kind of belief that there's going to be some improvement on that side of the ball, right? Absolutely. And, and you know, it, it's – I go back to last year. I remember um, walking off the practice fields with Jason Tarver, the former defensive coordinator. He just kept saying, you know, we're so young, we're so young, we're so young. And you can see them growing and you can see them getting it. Um, so I, I think Ted Roof has kind of been handed some personnel – that they're all a year stronger, they're all a year better, they're all a year more experienced. 
Uh, you have Dimitri Moore and Filetti Afamui at linebacker, along with Kenny Abair and Andre Mitt, some big-time veterans there. The secondary has got some big-time guys like Alan George, Randall Haney, uh, Dante Carrier-Williams, just to name a few. Um, you know, And then the defensive front, you're adding guys in um, Derek Green, who's a transfer from Oklahoma, and then a name Florida fans will be familiar with, Malik Langham, who sat out last year. They thought he might be able to get a, tra- a waiver to, to play right away. That didn't happen. Um, so he'll be fresh and ready to go. Those are big-time uh, defensive line talents there, not to mention a lot of returners they have on at that, on the front side of the ball as well with Cameron Tidd, Drew Birchmeyer, uh, Brandon Maddox, Davion Davis, I mean, uh, Dio Adeyingbo. The, the list goes on and on of, of guys who have played and guys who have contributed in this defense for one, two, three years. Uh, and like you said, add that to the experience that Ted Roof brings in as defensive coordinator. And that Vanderbilt defense, like I said, should be the strong suit of this 2020 Vanderbilt team. Now, I think what we saw in 2019 is is the defense was pretty good to begin with, but they just couldn't hold up for four quarters when that offense was going three and out, three and out, three and out, three and out. So uh, we all know how football works. I mean, it works hands in hand. That that Vanderbilt offense this year is going to have to find ways to move the ball, put some points on the board, and, and give their defense time to rest and regroup. Otherwise, no matter how good that defense is, if, if they're on the field for 45 out of 60 minutes, uh, they're just going to wear down over time against SEC competition. And Vanderbilt, you know, did have a little bit of a luxury most SEC teams didn't have. They did get to hold a little bit of spring practice. Was there anything you could take from the small sample size? Yeah, a little bit. I mean, I think there was kind of a a, a renewed energy or renewed spirit. I mean, I I think that you know you could probably say that for most teams around spring ball. But you know, I I really think I don't know if you want to call this a, a narrative or maybe a discussion about Vanderbilt football this year. But in 2019, there was so much focus on. Kalijah Lipscomb, Jared Pinkney, and Keyshawn Vaughn, and a lot of folks looking to them to kind of lead the way. And when defenses shut them down, uh, you could you could kind of tell you know Vanderbilt was searching for answers a little bit. So this year, you know they come in; those guys have departed for the NFL. I mean, so has Riley Neal, uh, so has Justice Shelton Mosley. They had a lot of guys go to the NFL in the NFL camp. So I think that's opened up a lot of positions and. And I think the writing is on the wall for a lot of young guys to say, all right, you know, it's, it's my turn. It's my time to step up. So especially on the offensive side of the ball, I think that's going to create maybe a new renewed energy and a renewed focus for that group to say, you know, all positions are on the table. No, no, there's no starter guaranteed. You're all competing to, to get in that too deep. Um, and, and I think that could be a good thing, good thing for this program in 2020 to see, you know, kind of who emerges as a leader and who emerges as a playmaker on that offensive side of the ball. Chad, one last thought before I let you go here. What are your thoughts on the Gators, of course, here on Gators Breakdown? Uh, talking to a lot of Gator fans, uh, you know, kind of hit you know, everybody kind of picking Florida, Georgia. Maybe this is the year Florida catches up with Georgia uh, a bit. How do you handi- how do you handicap the Gators in the in the race for the SEC East? Yeah, I, I think I would agree with that. It's it's sort of like you know that that get over the hump phrase, right? I mean, Florida's kind of been right there, and and Georgia, as we know, has kind of been king of the East here recently. And and I would expect nothing different. Twenty twenty, um, you know, I, I think maybe folks, maybe some folks are looking toward Knoxville as a sleeper. I wouldn't count ever count out Kentucky with what Coach Stoops has done up there in Lexington. Uh, but I, I, you know, I still think at the end of the day, it's probably Florida and Georgia's. Uh, division to win it's just a matter of you know can the Gators get it done in Jacksonville for one and and then can they kind of remain unblemished the rest of the way which as you and I know is is easier said than done in the SEC East or the SEC as a whole so 
Um, you know, I would not be surprised to see them in Atlanta at the end of the year. Of course, if we if we have an Atlanta at the end of the year, right? So, um, yeah, I mean, I, I think that's going to be a, a tough out for most teams. And uh, I'll be interested to see what the Gators look like when they arrive in Nashville in the fall, you know, kind of where they're at and where they're headed. And, um, you know, if they're up to the expectations, that I think the preseason will have them at. All right, that's Chad Bishop, Senior Editor of Athletic Communications at Vanderbilt, joining us here on Gators Breakdown, giving us a great preview of the Vanderbilt Commodores. Chad, thank you, man. All right, buddy. See you. Gabe DeArmond from PowerMizzou.com on the Rivals Network, joining us right now on Gators Breakdown to give us a quick preview of these Missouri Tigers. So Barry Odom out, Eli Drinkwitz in after one season at Appalachian State. He is in as new head coach of the Missouri Tigers. So, of course, hard to you know, really get a, a read on a new coach without any football going on. But what's been the early return so far, Gabe? Well, he's uh, he's won the PR battle, which in the offseason is, is really all you can do, you know. I mean, he's, he's good at Twitter. Um, yeah. He's good at getting the fans kind of fired up. Um, you know, he, he has some uh, kind of snarky comments for the media, which people always enjoy. So, you know, he's recruiting pretty well, uh, at least so far. I think they've got eight commitments, uh, I think, is the number right now. But, you know, it's uh, I've, I've always said, like, I've covered a, a fair number of new coaches here in two sports, and never is a coach more popular than, like, the eight months before he coaches a game. You know, um, I mean, everything is possible and everything's great. And, and don't you dare say otherwise. And we'll see how it is like after Missouri plays South Carolina in week three or four, whenever that happens. What was the initial reaction from the from the Tiger fan base? Of course, you know, only at Appalachian State for one season, a lot of success there. Uh, was there uh, skepticism, you know, because it's not really a well-known name, but uh, certainly some right. good results to point to so far. I think I think most people were pretty excited because it's a very un-Missouri-like hire, to be quite honest. Um, you know, they they don't tend to go out and take the risk, um, and this I, you tend to kind of know what you're what you're getting. I mean, like Conzo Martin, we kind of knew what he was. That's a that's a relatively safe hire. You know, Barry Odom was the very safe hire. I mean, not from the sense of would it work or not, but like he was the in-house guy, all that. Gary Pinkle, back when they hired him, like was a little bit of a chance, but he wasn't this exciting guy. You know, I mean, Drinkwitz has a personality, and the possibilities for what he could be are, I mean, it runs the gamut. Everything, you know, I mean, he has a chance. Hey, he's 36 years old, young guy. He has a chance to recruit like nobody's ever recruited at Missouri. He also has the chance to be like, you just paid $4 million for a guy who's literally never coached his own players, you know? So I don't think anybody really has any idea what to expect. That's that's part of what's fun about it is, is that there is that wide gulf of what might or might not happen. And I'm sure much has been made. He was at App State. And look, already got a big win over an SEC team last year. <laughs> Yeah, and a, a team that, uh, you know, Missouri tends to uh, kind of be in the same neighborhood as generally. I mean, if you look back since Missouri's joined the SEC, uh, generally Missouri beating South Carolina means pretty decent things uh, for what they're going to do in the East and all that. So, yeah, that's uh, that's helpful. Again, I, I have some questions because, I, I mean, we know Scott Satterfield is a good coach now. Because not only did he do it at App for a while, but like he he took Louisville and, 
and had one of the bigger turnarounds in the country last year. So I know Scott Satterfield can build a program. I know Eli Drinkwitz can keep the program that Scott Satterfield has built on the tracks. I just don't yet know if he can build it himself. Well, one thing we do know, you know, he has a, a background in offense, pretty exciting offense. But you know, without a clear quarterback for the Tigers this coming year, and Larry Roundtree and, and Tyler Beatty returning at running back, do you expect to see a, a run-heavy attack this coming season? I mean, it, it would make sense, especially because receiver is is kind of. I mean, they lost Albert O at tight end, and wide receiver is. Wasn't, wasn't much of a strength last year. Uh, they will be, I think, better running the ball than they will throwing the ball. And, you know, quarterback will be interesting because, uh, I mean, we the quarterbacks weren't allowed to talk during the three spring football practices we saw. And while you would think Sean Robinson, a transfer from TCU, has the upper hand, I mean, well, most of spring practice got canceled. So whatever upper hand there might have been, I'm not sure he's going to have. Connor Basilak is a redshirt freshman who played a little bit actually started the Arkansas game played a played a series at Georgia played a little bit here and there started the Arkansas game was looking pretty decent towards ACL in that game so he's gonna he was going to miss spring football well all of a sudden just missing those three practices really isn't nearly as big a deal as it was going to be because he's expected to be back for fall camp so there could be because of the way everything's gone the last couple months there could be a little more of a competition than we thought there was going to be. And if we move to the other side of the ball, Drinkwitz decided to keep defensive coordinator Ryan Walters from Odom's staff. Do you think that was a wise move, and, and will it help the transition to this new staff, especially now with no spring practice? At least there is some familiarity right. with, with a coach on staff now. Yeah, not only did he keep Walters, he kept the defensive line coach and the cornerbacks coach, and uh, Brick Haley and David Gibbs. And it, it's kind of interesting. I mean, it's, it's the exact opposite. Missouri had a defensive coordinator as the head coach. And, I mean – I haven't been around many guys who were more hands off the offense than Barry Odom was. I mean, he in press conferences he called the offense day. You know, I mean, it was crazy how hands off he was. Now, I think Drinkwitz will be a little more hands on with the defense, but like he's the offensive coordinator, he's not going to spend most of practice over watching the linebackers. You know, so I I thought one of the the kind of issues under Odom was it was almost like they had two head coaches. You know, it was like. He's the head coach of the defense, and then they got this other guy over here running the offense. And you know, the last two years, that other guy was was Derek Dooley, which didn't go very well. Um, so I'll be interested to see kind of how Drinkwitz handles the defense and and all that. So uh, yeah, I think it helps having the same guy. And, and defense was not the problem with this team last right. year. I mean, it it struggled in the opener against uh, against Wyoming certainly, but after that, they they really played pretty decent defense most of last year. All right, Gabe, before I let you go here, uh, kind of thoughts on the SEC East uh, right now and kind of how it shakes out. There's a lot of talk of, you know, just being a Gators podcast, that the Gators are maybe even catching up for Georgia for one season uh, with, with the experience of Kyle Trask coming back yeah. and, and Dan Mullen. How would you uh, handicap the SEC East right now? Yeah, I mean, I know there's definitely questions about Georgia with with what's going to happen at quarterback, and they, they lost a lot. Uh, Kirby has been recruiting at a ridiculous level. I, I think they kind of have to be picked as the favorite going in. I, I don't I don't know enough about them to know that they're the best team, but I, they've clearly been head and shoulders above everybody else the last couple of years, so you got to go knock them off. And, and Florida certainly seems the team most equipped to do that. I mean, I, I would be shocked if there is a ballot cast at whatever online virtual Zoom meeting we do for media days that does not have Florida and Georgia in some <laughs> order as the top two teams in the SEC East. 
Except, of course, we will have three people who work in Knoxville who vote for Tennessee. <laughs> Probably so. Not like three particular people. I'm not right, saying right. anyone out. Just three people as a general thing. That's going to happen. Yeah, absolutely I, I think so too so Gabe man thanks so much for uh, hopping on here Gators Breakdown giving us a quick rundown of everything new going on at Missouri and I, I, I can't thank you enough alright David have a good one man and to end this thing giving us a look at the Florida State Seminoles is former FSU fullback James Coleman also co-host of the Sports Den on 1010XL and you can check out his work as well at the 5th Quarter College Football James, thanks for doing this for me. And look, man, with, with no spring ball being held and, and players off campus right now, it's really tough for a new head coach to instill their, their own new culture. So you know, what's been the word on how uh, Mike Norvell has handled the program so far? Um, well, what they're doing is, is kind of what everybody's doing. is They're really trying to kind of corral people in as much as they can. Believe it or not, a lot of guys have come back home. Well, not home. They've come back to Tallahassee, and they're working out um, with uh, actually one of my former old teammates, uh, Mikhail Cornegy, a.k.a. the DB doctor. And what's happening is, and what you hope kind of continues, is that they're creating their own culture of accountability. And Coach Norvell is kind of keeping updates, and the coaches are keeping updates through Zoom, through phone calls, and through different things like that. So um, I really believe that they're trying to they're, they're trying to meet with these guys every day. Um, the Zoom calls, they're looking at every little intricate detail. So, like, if you're not paying attention or if your thing goes on pause, um, they're they're tracking up them. They're they're rallying up those punishments, and they're just trying to continue to build the relationships because that's about all you really can do. Since you can't really build the football acumen, but you can build the relationships and try to build the IQ of what they are actually doing, all um, of the mental part, which I think a lot of people don't understand. Which I believe personally has been Florida State's problem even before Tiger under the last few years at Jimbo. It's not so much that they're not mental, they're not physically strong players; they're mentally weak and football dumb. All right, on offense, James Blackman returns at quarterback, but, you know, what would be his fourth different offensive coordinator in as many years? Uh, look, if, if, if he's not going to be the quarterback, there are some choices behind him there, of course, but uh, looking like you know, he'll, he'll be the guy, especially with no spring practice and the most experience there. Uh, offensive line's coming off another subpar season. Cam Akers is gone. Tamarian, uh, Tamarian Terry returns. You know, what's the outlook for a completely new offense? Well, I think we have to you have to really pay attention to what Memphis did and look at what was tried to be accomplished with Taggart. It's not really completely different. Uh, obviously, terminology is one of the hardest things to understand. It's like learning a new language. Uh, and the tempo variance, I think, kind of will be better with, um, with Mike Norvell having a staff that's kind of used to what they want, him working with Dillingham, um, wide receiver coach Dugan, you, you run your routes, you don't. It doesn't matter. The offensive line coaches have worked in similar systems, <clears throat> so you have an understanding of what's going on. Um, a lot of quick throws, um, a lot of zone read, a lot of um, multiple formations. Those are things that we've seen or attempted to see, and I think um, that should kind of lessen the learning curve. Whereas when Taggart took over, you had Jimbo who had a pro style with a fullback, and things like that, that would that where you're trying to run 60 to 80 plays, and you're flipping that to run 100 to 120 plays. That's a paradigm shift. This right here isn't as much of a paradigm shift, but like you said, it's still the fourth 
voice that you heard in the last four years, which is never um, optimal. But I think this is why this might be the best time. Because if you, if anybody's ever played in the NFL or you've seen the NFL, it's less practice and more concepts, more learning and understanding, more board work. So this might actually be able to help them learn a little bit more because they've been forced to do things differently. For the most part, you have your spring ball, you break, go to classes, and then you don't have any contact with your coaches like that over the summer. But with the new NCAA um, kind of leaning up on the regulations a little bit, you're able to, again, talk to your coach longer than you would have ever talked to your coach before um, in this in this matter. So you're getting a chance to learn the why behind the what. And if James Blackman can learn that, then he can see himself being better. Because what a lot of people don't understand is the learning curve of actually playing from high school is, is night and day, especially if you didn't get a chance to get that spring in. Um, I, I attribute it to if anybody's ever seen the movie Any Given Sunday with Jamie Foxx. When he first got on the field and all he saw were blurs, I promise you that's what it's like because there's no way to mimic it even if you play at the highest levels of, of um, high school football. It's just different when you're playing in a Power 5 conference and when you, obviously when you go up against um, a defensive coordinator in Grantham that you guys have at the University of Florida who does a really good job of tricking good quarterbacks, let alone a high school quarterback. But he probably will have a short lease. If he's not really getting it done, uh, I believe that guys like Chubba Purdy um, and, and even Tay Rodemaker uh, could actually benefit from not having that spring because now Blackman, nobody had, everybody's on the same level. The only difference is, again, it's when somebody's actually made the throw against the competition and somebody who's only done it in, on the high school level or on the camp level. All right, we'll move to the other side of the ball, man. And, look, James, look, obviously there's talent up front and on the back end for the Seminoles' defense. And what's it going to take for this, that group to, to, to play up to it finally? Um, what it's going to take is – Guys to be consistent. And I think the defense has gotten a really bad rap because the offense did it no favors. Uh, the one thing about even LSU, um, Aranda is a great def- defensive um, coordinator. But when you look at what happened when you're running, when you're constantly going up tempo, you're on the field a lot. So you a lot more points are getting scored. Now, now granted, LSU's offense put up numbers, but when your offense doesn't put up numbers and gets off the field and puts you in bad situations, it makes you consistently poor. Um, So what I think will happen is, again, there's some synergy there. Um, Coach Fuller knows what it's like to work with Coach Norvell, and Coach Fuller is a guy who loves to run different blitzes. If you've looked at – and he also keeps you prepared. Now, there are games when – they went up against some some really good offenses um, in the AAC. But when you look at what he did against Ole Miss, that first game out the gate, that defense was prepared and gave them fits. Now he has a little bit better quality of an athlete to be able to work with, which probably will help him do more gambling, which will make the defense kind of almost more exciting. And Fuller is a very intense coach, um, if you've ever got a chance to meet him. And he also listens, and he's very, very – like, different than – a Harlan Barnett, who's kind of more calm, which you don't really typically see in your defensive coordinator. This guy has a little bit of a Mickey Andrews feel, and I remember the conversation I had with him in February, and I was just explaining to him what Mickey Andrews was like. It was almost like, I want to be that guy. I want to be the, the, the defensive coordinator that, that FSU fans talk like he's the head coach, like he's a legend. 
So I think that's contagious. Mixed in with the coaches that he brought in, a coach Woodson, who's coached in um, SEC, um, had some guy had a good amount of DBs go. You got um, man, why can't I think of the linebackers coach? But he's Purdue again, SEC ties. Um, he's he's really good job at developing. And I think that's where FSU fans got to really watch because what FSU's been known for is linebackers. Um, like you have from your Bushes to your Derrick Brooks to your Marvin Jones to like just always a middle linebacker who is a guy who just intimidated people and set the tone. We've got some young guys in that linebacker core who can do it, but it's really all about Marvin Wilson, Corey Durden, and Robert Cooper. If they can control the middle and if they can find another defense alignment so they have that two-man rotation that's deep, it's good. they're going to continue to take the double teams, which – now, a Kando, a Janoris Robinson, those guys have to be able to eat. If they can find a way to get that D-line more dominant, the linebacker play to be better, with those athletes that they've recruited, that, that the previous some staffs have recruited at, um, in the secondary, FSU could actually have an opportunistic defense. It's just about can they play discipline, can they buy in, which is, a, this is a, it's such a stupid word to be able to have to use at a power five level, but if they could buy in, FSU could actually put out an eight nine win season. All right, James, final thought here, of course. It is a Gators Breakdown, Gators Podcast. What's your thoughts on Florida? Dan Mullen, two seasons here. Uh, yeah, 10 wins, 11 wins, going into uh, year three where uh, a lot of people are, you know, maybe picking Florida to, to kind of upend Georgia and the SEC East here. Uh, what's your thoughts on Florida and, uh, you know, how, how FSU matches up in Norvell's first year? Um, I think Dan Mullen is an excellent coach. Um, for all the jokes and a lot of other things, I think he's done a – he's a really good he, – he's very good at, at creating ma- mismatches and being able to get the most out of his players. And when you listen to him talk about it, it's very rare. I always – I mean, not rare. It's very, very good. I always go back to, I think, what he said the first year. I don't have to have a running quarterback. I have to have a quarterback who's willing to run. And it just explains – the offense, it makes it, you have to be a threat. And it just, it gives three dimensions to an offense that most people don't have. Now, I think um, they're, they're prime. Um, I think sometimes Florida fans are a little, probably too, not necessarily unrealistic, but um, the expectations or what you guys like to say, the Gator standard might be a little bit too high for a program that's not that far removed from, from two four-win seasons. But I believe if Mullen can continue to do what he's doing, he'll, he could be a Spurrier-type guy. Um, cause, I mean, he's recruiting in the top ten. He's doing a, a good job, which that was one of his weaknesses. But, you know, winning and the logo and, and him bringing in some guys that actually do have good relationships and can recruit well, um, I think that's going to at least get you in a conversation. But, I mean, I, I think if you can't beat Georgia this year, then I can see that that would be trouble because they're probably either going to, even if Newman starts um, or Beck, you've got a guy who's in his first year seeing this kind of talent week in and week out. But I do think that if nothing else, Florida will be one of the top four teams in the SEC, even though I believe Tennessee is building something up there um, in terms of recruiting with um, what, Pruitt, what Pruitt's been able to do is amazing. But as far as matching up, um, right now I just I still have to give the edge to to Florida um, until I can see that type of offense work um, in this on this level. I have no, I have to give the edge to the defense with Grantham. I have to give 
the edge offensively to um, what Muller can do. Um, even though I think you you have a couple guys who are primed for having breakout seasons at wide receiver for what I've seen, even though none of, nobody's really eclipsed or pushed, but the one thing is consistent. Mullen can find a different target, and your running backs should be pretty good. I mean, especially if you can get the young man from Miami eligible. Um, if he's on the field first, I mean, I think that gives you guys um, an edge. Um, and, and your trenches, the way Florida's recruited the trenches the last two years, um, really puts them, in my opinion, ahead of Florida State for the next two to three years. All right, great thoughts there from James Coleman, man. James, I can't thank you enough for uh, you know hopping on here and uh, giving a quick look at FSU and, and, and ending our uh, kind of whip around coverage of the of the Florida opponents. Uh, no problem, man. Anytime. That concludes our opponent whip around coverage. Every opponent previewed for you for the 2020 season right here on Gators Breakdown over the last few weeks. Been a, been a lot of fun to get caught up with, like I said, no spring practice. So we kind of missed out on some of the storylines we would have been following uh, for these Gators opponents. But a lot of, a lot of good stuff there. Uh, and uh, get you caught up heading into these summer months with all these preseason magazines coming out. Uh, so uh, you caught up on uh, some of the opponents now uh, that the Gators will be facing as well. So that'll do it for this episode of Gators Breakdown. I am your host, David Waters. You can find me on Twitter at GatorDave underscore F-E-C. Guys and girls out there, thanks for listening to this episode of Gators Breakdown.